Uh, Wednesday night, we're gonna continue our Through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter uh, study through the Bible. Uh, and we're in the Gospel of Mark. So this time, why don't you turn to Mark chapter 13. It's where we are uh, in our study, Mark 13. Last Sunday, we saw the cynics and the critics trying to fire questions at Jesus to try to trap him and trick, trick him and make him say something wrong. Uh, but we, they ended their questioning, the Herodians, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests and the scribes, they all came with their questions, but Jesus, Jesus silenced them all. And then he asked them a question that they couldn't answer. Uh, and, and so he soundly defeated them uh, in, in sort of debate form. Um, but that was his day's work. He, he was there at the Temple Mount uh, talking to these religious leaders and uh, they were wanting to mess him up, but he just, uh, again, he is the truth, so he knows the truth. But all that to say, after a hard day of debating with these guys, if you would, he would then leave the Mount of Olives, go down the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives, and then once he crossed over the Mount of Olives, they'd have over to the little town of Bethany, where he would spend the night. We don't see Jesus spending the night in Jerusalem. He always left uh, in the evening and went over to Mary Martha Lazarus's house, crashed there, and then he'd go back in Jerusalem the next day. Uh, so after all the you know, uh, debate there, he was making his way down, and the disciples seemed to be like, Jesus, did you get a chance to look at how beautiful and glorious the temple was there in Jerusalem? Like, did you see? And Jesus said to them, well, uh, not one of these stones of the temple are gonna stay on another. This, this place is gonna be crushed. Um, have you ever had somebody sort of minimize something you're trying to say? Did you see how wonderful that was? Like, yeah, whatever. That's kind of, it, it, it happened to me when I was six years old. My grandparents took us on a little road trip, me and my two sisters, Jenny and Tammy, and, and they're old, they had this big station wagon. I always sat in the very back of the station wagon. You guys that are old enough to remember that. Um, but we drove through Death Valley and all kinds of, it was quite a, quite a little road trip. Uh, but we ended up at, at nighttime driving through the town of Las Vegas. I had never seen such a wonder. With all the lights and everything, I was in the back just going, wow, you know. It was beautiful. And when I got home, um, my mom and dad were asking about all the things we did and I listed among them, mom and dad, I saw the most beautiful city I've ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> like, what's that? Las Vegas. <laughs> and my dad said, sit down, son, we have to talk. <laughs> and he gave me that life lesson. You know, some things look very sparkly and beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of crud and sin and debauchery. He said, that's Las Vegas. Uh, and um, it's funny because I hadn't been back to Las Vegas until a couple years ago. Our family was doing a road trip from Utah down to, to through Arizona, and we went and saw Zion National. But um, we, we, we were driving near Las Vegas, so let's just drive through and see. And, uh, and during the daytime, I kind of saw what my dad was talking about. Yeah, it's a pretty horrible city, but uh, I wouldn't want to live there. Sorry if you live there in Las Vegas and you're just visiting. You might want to move to, well, never mind. Um, <laughs> pot calling the kettle black here. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> after being in the city, Jesus started like, yeah, whatever, these stones are gonna, you know, um, that's what Jesus, you know, the disciples, did you see the beautiful temple? Yeah, this temple that I just turned tables over and called it a den of thieves. Yeah, that one, not one of these stones are gonna stay on another. Well, <clears throat> in the disciples' minds, they're thinking, what is he talking about? You see, the stones of the temple uh, during that era 
Um, they were big stones. Uh, each stone stacked building the temple there in the Herod's remodel of the first century temple in Jerusalem, the stones were about the size of a Volkswagen bus. They were huge stones, eight feet wide, 10 feet long, uh, these big rectangular stones, huge. And they were stacked so perfectly on top, you couldn't even get a knife blade between the, the various stones. They were so perfectly fitted and hewn. Um, it was quite a structure. And no one could even imagine those stones toppling over for any reason. And so when Jesus says this, yeah, not one of those stones of the temple are gonna stay on another. And by the way, that prophecy Jesus made was fulfilled by Titus in AD 70 when the Romans came and gold had melted into the cracks of the stones because of the heat that was the fire of the burning of the temple that uh, all the Roman soldiers overturned every single stone and got the gold out. Uh, Jesus knew what he was talking about. But see, the disciples, when they asked that question on their way up the Mount of Olives going home to Mary and Martha's house, uh, they're like, what is he talking about? It must be the end of the world. So they asked Jesus a question that springs into an answer that's the longest answer Jesus gave to anyone about anything. Do you remember our study last week when Jesus answered the critics? His longest answer was like 10 seconds long. He just gave them really quick, short answers that were powerful and truthful. But when the disciples ask the question they're about to ask, he'll spend... Here in Mark, it's a whole chapter. The same story in Matthew is a whole two chapters of red letters where Jesus answers. It's called the Olivet Discourse because they're on the Mount of Olives. The disciples asked a question and Jesus answered and gave a discourse on the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, and the destruction of the temple. And that's where we pick it up. In fact, I'd like to, we're not gonna go into the, the you know, details of the Olivet Discourse today. We'll do that on Wednesday night. But I'd like to draw your attention to first the question and then some uh, things we can learn about this Olivet Discourse a little bit later. So uh, Mark chapter 13, they ask the question in verse three and four. It says, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign and when all these things shall be fulfilled. Um, what things shall be fulfilled? When the temple is destroyed. And these guys are asking, when is, when is all this gonna come down? What's gonna happen with the world and stuff like that? Now, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's account, as I mentioned earlier, is much, much longer and more detailed. You say, well, why should we read Mark's account if it's smaller and shorter? Mark gives us stuff that we don't know. Like, he, he adds to the story in kind of a unique way. I love the four gospels that fill in all the gaps of, of the story of Jesus. But this is one of those cases. In fact, one thing we learn already in Mark is that it was Peter, James, and John, and Andrew who asked this question. Uh, if you read the Matthew's account there in Matthew 24, it says, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, we don't know who in Matthew, but saying, tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? Um, that's what they were asking. Now. In the disciples' defense, they perhaps didn't even really know what they were asking. In their minds, they're thinking, you mean the temple's gonna be destroyed? That must mean the earth is gonna be destroyed. So when, are you, when is your coming, your second coming? And when will these things, the destruction of the temple and the end of the world? I think they thought they were asking kind of one question. But it's actually sort of three questions and Jesus is gonna tell them about that. That's why so many red letters are coming. Um, he's gonna say there's a difference. The destruction of the temple, well, that would happen in AD 70 by the Romans. 
Um, the second coming, we don't know the day or the hour when that's gonna happen. And the end of the world, what are gonna be the signs of the times of the end of the world? Jesus is gonna answer that question here. Uh, there's three accounts of the Olivet Discourse, one in Matthew 24, verses, uh, chapter 24 and 25, <coughs> Mark chapter 13, which is our text today, and also Luke chapter 21, the Olivet Discourse is given there as well. So we have all kinds of information about this. It's, it's one of the most documented things in the Bible. Jesus' answer to the disciples about the last days, the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Christ. So um, now on Wednesday night, we'll look at those signs. And, and if you've been with us for very long, when we were in Matthew 24, just a few months ago, we covered, it took us like five weeks to go through the Olivet Discourse. Wednesday night, we're gonna do the whole thing because it's just a short chapter here in Mark's account. It's fairly short. But he'll remind us of wars and rumors of wars and things that are gonna come in the last days. Um, you know, there'll be troubles and earthquakes, famine and sorrows, uh, uh, trouble is coming. That's gonna be one of the signs of the end of the world is, as more and more trouble comes in the world, that's a sign of the times of his second coming. Now, what I wanna focus on, however, is not as much the signs of those times. Uh, we'll do that Friday night, by the way, on our prophecy update and stuff like that, talking about signs of the times. But I wanna address the, what should we do if, if we look at the signs of the times and perceive that we're living in the last days? Brett, I've got you right there. There's people that have believed they were living in the last days and then they died and they went to heaven, but they were wrong. Uh, do you wanna be one of those people who think that the rapture of the church or the second coming of Christ could happen in your lifetime? Uh, do you really wanna be one of those people? My answer, absolutely yes. I want to be a believer who's watching and waiting for his imminent return, the, the second coming of Christ, the rapture of the church. These are the things I, I wanna look for. Why? Because the Bible tells us to live that way. That's just the simple answer. The Bible tells us, and I'll prove to you today that that's something that Jesus emphasizes along with Paul the Apostle. Um, and I, I, I'm concerned there's an attitude, ah, whatever, I don't wanna watch uh, for things. You know, things are just gonna happen the way God's gonna do it and you know, I'm just gonna live my life and worry about myself. Um, if you were here, don't make me do that sermon again. But, uh, but yeah, it's not about yourself. Uh, why would God want us to live? Even, even if, if, if we die before the rapture of the church and the second, why would he want us to live with anticipation of his coming. Because that's what he wants the disciples to do that are right here asking the question. And it's also what he wants his church to do for all the ages, to live with that eminence over their heads that at any moment the Lord could return. Why should we live with that? Well, Jesus is gonna give us some hints and the Bible tells us everything we need to know about that. Let's take a look, in fact, at the, let's see how he wraps up the Olivet Discourse here in Mark chapter 13. And this, this really is our main text for the morning. Uh, we'll study the whole thing on Wednesday. But in chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus wraps up his Olivet Discourse saying this. But of the day and the hour knoweth no man, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch, and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh, 
at evening or midnight or the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say to all, watch. What do you think Jesus wants us to do? Uh, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this one out. He says over and over and over again, watch, 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 watch. Watch what, TV? Just go outside and stand and watch the clouds. Is the Lord coming today? Is that what he's saying? What does it mean to watch? What's Jesus saying? Well, I believe it's not just watch, it's that, but there's three main things Jesus says, if you are a Christian, because uh, uh, I want you to notice, he's not just talking to the disciples. In verse 37, and what I say unto you, disciples, I say to all, that, that means Portlandia. That means us. What I say to you, disciples, I say to all, watch, exclamation point. That's, that's the idea. So what are we supposed to do if we're living in the last days, which I believe we really are. I, I, I'm persuaded of that, but I, I wouldn't die on that battlefield and say for sure it's the last days, but it seems like it to me. Well, how do you know? Well, we've been watching what's going on around the world and the Bible gives us all kinds of evidence of what the last days would look like. We'll talk about that a little more, but let's go over the three main things we should be doing. If we're living, watching, and waiting, and doing the right thing, what are we supposed to do? Well, watching's part of it. I'll, I'll explain that later. But the first thing I wanna point out is that he tells us that we should pray, that we are to be a people that pray. Here's the problem. A lot of you are already, yeah, 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 Brett, we're supposed to pray, we're Christians. Yeah, Jesus, prayer, all that's the thing. Yeah, got it. But my question is, how are you doing at prayer? Do you emphasize prayer in your life and in your walk? Uh, do you do what 1 Thessalonians chapter five uh, tells us in verse 17, pray without ceasing? Um, that's what the Bible says, for this is the will of God, that we pray without ceasing. Here, Jesus says, take heed, watch, verse 33. He says, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. See, Brad, right there, you know, it says no man knows the day or the hour, not even the angels or the son, but the father. If nobody knows the day or the hour, why in the world would we care? Here's the problem, Christians. Um, the church, the greater church uh, around the world right now is in kind of what I think a vulnerable situation because they're not watching, nor are they praying as much as I think we should, but they're not watching. You know, largely churches and pastors have said this, Bible prophecy is a waste of time. Brett, who says that? Well, a guy they call America's pastor, Rick Warren, who wrote A Purpose Driven Life, I forget what chapter and verse, uh, or you know, page, I've, I've given this before, but he, 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 in his Purpose Driven Life, he said some nice things and some good scriptures and stuff, and maybe that book helped you, wonderful. But I hope you didn't listen to when he said, studying Bible prophecy is a waste of time. That's what he said in his book. Uh, I, I, I marvel that a guy who loves the Lord, a guy who teaches the Bible, could actually take one-fourth of the Bible and whoosh, rip it out and say, yeah, don't study this part, because that's what the Bible is. One-fourth of it deals with Bible prophecy. Why would we not read that part of the Bible or care about it? Well, Pastor Brett, no man knows the day or the hour, and I, you talk about pre-trib, post-trib, amillennialism, sawmillism, or whatever. Uh, I don't get all that stuff, and I'm, I'm a pan-tribber. Have you ever heard somebody joke around that? I'm a pan-tribber. And I said, what does that mean? Oh, it's just all gonna pan out, whatever. Um, can I just say, uh, that's mildly funny, uh, but horrifically wrong. Um, the Lord didn't ask you to be a pan. It's just gonna happen, so I'm not gonna do anything. Jesus tells us here, here's what I want you to do. And the first thing he says, watch and pray. 
So watching, what does it mean not to look up at the sky and wait, watching the sky? What are we supposed to watch? Well, you know, I'm reminded of where Jesus told his disciples before, or, you know, in another story, I should say, to watch and pray. Is there anywhere where Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray? The Garden of Gethsemane. Was that a big deal? Was the Garden of Gethsemane kind of a big deal? Yes. Um, why did Jesus want them to watch and pray there? The same thing he tells the disciples to do in light of the end times and the, 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 the coming of Christ and the destruction of the world. He says, what you need to be doing is watching and praying. Meanwhile, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said the same thing. Would you please watch and pray? And, and he sat the disciples there and Jesus went over and he was watching and praying. And then he looked over at the disciples and what were they doing? They're just sleeping over there. Jesus comes, hey guys, can't you just watch and pray? I mean, this is kind of a big deal. I'm about to be apprehended by the Romans and the Sanhedrin. I'm gonna be crucified on a cross. Can you please watch and pray with me? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes off again. Um, that, that, they were not watching and praying. They were just snoozing. Did you see what our text said? He said, verse 36, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Again, verse 33, take heed, watch and pray. I think Jesus is asking of us the same thing he asked the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what's that? A huge event was about to happen and he wanted his disciples sharp, prayed up, watchful and ready for what was happening around them. Being extremely aware of the circumstances of that evening, knowing what was going to happen. That's what he was asking of them as his disciples, perhaps even as his friends. Would you guys please just watch and pray with me? This is a big deal that's happening. But Jesus kind of found himself on his own with that one. Fortunately, he was God in the flesh and he uh, perfectly handled the Garden of Gethsemane situation. We couldn't say that about the disciples. Peter wakes up, oh, what's going on? Pulls out a sword, Zoros is up, accidentally chops off a guy's ear. Like he wasn't really ready. Uh, I think we can all agree Peter kind of blew it there in the Garden of Gethsemane because he wasn't really ready for the moment. Um, I wonder if some of us, what are we doing in these last days? Well, sadly, a lot of the church is why? Because they're saying, ah, it's not important. We'll do a 10-week series on tithing or how to balance your checkbook or how to keep a happy family. I mean, those are some nice topics and stuff. But to not include the whole Bible um, and study what the Bible says about the last days, which there's so much in the scriptures about that. But I wonder, I wonder how we're doing with the whole prayer part. Are we pray, prayer warriors or, um, or do we barely pray? What kind of emphasis is prayer in the Bible? You know, one of the things Athe Creek we try to do is to, as we go verse by verse through the Bible, is you kind of count how many things are talked about, how often, what's the most important thing? And you can kind of get a sense, I think. You can get a sense of what's important to God for his church uh, by how many times it's mentioned and what kind of an emphasis it has in the Bible. Um, and I worry that sometimes we as humans get the emphasis a bit wrong. For example, let me just give you one example. I can give you hundreds, but um, let's talk about worship. What kind of emphasis do we have in the New Testament, in the early church or the whole New Testament? What kind of an emphasis is there on worship? And what kind of emphasis does the church put on worship? Some people choose what church they're gonna go to based on the worship. The, the, and when I say worship, the wrong definition of Music, guitars, keyboards, drums, 
uh, smoke flailing off the stage with lights flashing, and ooh, that's a good worship, I'm going to that church. How much of the New Testament talk, how many times does the New Testament talk about the worship team? Anybody? Zip, there's no worship team in the New Testament, the whole worship, the whole team. Uh, what about the worship director? Is it the deacons, the elders, the bishops, and the worship director? Is the worship, how many times is the worship director mentioned? Zip. Uh, how much is singing even talked about in the New Testament? Well, that's what's even more shocking to me is it's mentioned only a couple little times. Ephesians, you know, Paul says, oh, we're supposed to in church, you know, and as, as we gather, sing songs and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. So that's one. And then you've got Jesus uh, there at the upper room when he led a hymn. How many? One hymn. Did he say, like Lawrence walked, a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, and the band kind of kicking, smoke started coming and the lights. And, is that what Jesus did at the upper room? No, actually Jesus just sang an acapella hymn, one hymn with his disciples. So there's a second mention of worship in the New Testament. And then the third mention is when we get to heaven, there in Revelation 22, we're all gonna be standing around the throne, worshiping, singing, holy, 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 is Lord God Almighty. Um, and now, now I know what some of you are thinking, Brad, are you anti-worship? Well, I'm pro-worship uh, and I love music. Uh, I love singing songs. I think it's fun to come to church and sing songs of praise to the Lord. And I think that is a good thing for church to do. I'm not arguing against it, but emphasis. Have we made a wrong emphasis on something? Because how many churches, it's all about worship, um, and, and how much is it about prayer? Okay, I, we already did the exercise of talking about worship. And by the way, worship in the Bible, it's not just music. There's so many different forms of worship. You can worship the Lord by serving. You can worship the Lord by studying the word. You can worship the Lord by giving of tithes and offerings. You can there's so many other ways to go out serving on a mission. Like, like these are ways you can worship the Lord. It's not worship, we falsely think of it as music. Music is a wonderful way to worship. It's just one of many. But how many times does the New Testament talk about prayer? Anybody? 300, good guess. Uh, I, I haven't counted, there's too many to count. I, I haven't taken the time to count when the Bible talks about prayer. It's just it's in the New Testament, Old Testament, prayer, 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 pray, pray, pray. And, and the emphasis is not only in numbers, but even in direct words. Like think about 1 Timothy chapter two. Paul's training young Timothy to be a pastor and here's what he says. He says in 1 Timothy two, I exhort therefore, which is the strongest way of saying something. Timothy, I'm exhorting you. Like this is like whip whap. You know, listen to what I'm saying here. Uh, I exhort you therefore that first of all, priority, for, uh, supplication, which is a form of prayer, uh, prayers, intercessions, another form of prayer, and giving of thanks, another form of prayer. These are four, you can talk about prayer, supplication, intercession, and giving of thanks, all prayer, but they all kind of serve a different function. But he says, first of all, priority, that, that prayers, intercession, supplication, intercession, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Paul says, Timothy, here's your priority. Prayer, pray, pray, pray is what he's saying. Meanwhile, um, Jesus told us when the last days, when you, when you see the signs of the times that I talk about in Mark chapter 13, Matthew 24 and 25, uh, Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse, one of the things you should do in light of the last days is watch and pray. 
Jesus told us that that should be the emphasis. It's funny how uh, oftentimes we don't pray until we're in a big pickle. Have you ever noticed that? It's when we're in trouble. That's when we start to become prayer warriors. I'm, I'm in a real bind, my finances, I'm broke. Lord, it's coming in our prayer. That's okay. You know, um, it's funny how in history, there's a bunch of rewriters of history that try to make Abraham Lincoln that he was not a uh, real uh, believer or anything like that. Um, but he was, I've read a lot of Abraham's writings. And, and one of the things he said during the Civil War, he said this, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. Mine own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. Here's a guy who was one of the most amazing leaders in America's history. And even he said, there's times where my ability and the people around me, it wasn't enough. I had to go to my knees and pray. And that's what the Bible teaches us to do, to pray without ceasing. Uh, he didn't teach us to complain. He taught us to pray. He didn't teach us to just be anxious and sit around being filled with anxiety. He said, pray. Uh, when things go bad in the last days, pray. How are we doing? Man, I see people that are more into, you know, lighting up social media when things get bad rather than pray. Or, you know, talking to our friends about, oh, can you believe what's going on in the world today? When we're really supposed to be talking to the Lord about what's going on in the world today. Um, I'm reminded of Philippians chapter four, verses four through nine, famous scripture. There, uh, Paul says, I love this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. How often? Always. And he says, again, I will say it, rejoice. Um, note that, that Paul says rejoice twice here, and he's writing from a prison cell in Rome. He's in prison. If I were in prison and I was writing a book to the Philippians, I'd write 101 ways to escape from prison or dealing with depression in the dungeon, or like, you know, like, like write a book about something else. But, <clears throat> but Paul writes a book uh, about joy and rejoicing. In fact, the book of Philippians, he uses the word joy or rejoice 19 times in that book. Um, what's up with that guy? Well, he knows how to deal with difficulty. And he's gonna give us a huge tool in your tool bag right here um, of how to deal with this uh, trouble. He says, rejoice. I, again, I sort of just let your gentleness <clears throat> be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition <clears throat> with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, let's break this down a, a little bit. He says, um, do not be anxious. Um, first, he says, uh, let your gentleness be ev evident to all. Interesting word, and I'm using the NIV here on purpose. I'll show you why in a second. <clears throat> but the King James says moderation. Which one is it, moderation or gentleness? Um, well, the word gentleness uh, and moderation, if you put those two together, that's kind of the idea of what the original Greek says. The idea is don't be radical on things on earth, um, but of the thing, be concerned about the things of heaven. The Lord is near. In other words, um, you know, don't be so um, heavy-sided on, on one thing but let your moderation or gentleness be evident to all. Are, are Christians doing good at being gentle and moderate in these troubling times? I'm not sure we are. Um, and especially because he goes from rejoice to be moderate and gentle to then he says, and do not be anxious about anything. Well, bro, you can't just say, don't be anxious. Let's walk up to a person who's anxious and say, don't be anxious. 
Well, that's not what Paul's doing. People say that when they read this verse. What does Paul just want me not to be anxious? Um, well, yeah, he doesn't want you to be anxious, but he, he'll give you the tools of how to deal with anxiety. And before we go over those tools, is the world more anxious today than it was last year? Um, most of you can sense it if you don't know the statistics, but the statistics are alarming. Um, we could talk about teenagers and kids' anxiety that's skyrocketing in the last three years. But um, did you know anxiety is the most common mental disorder in the United States affecting 40 million adults' anxiety? Um, this is an interesting one. As I was looking this up uh, just a couple days ago, um, the prevalence by state in the United States, mental illness, uh, the, particularly anxiety, ranges from the lowest state to the highest state. Can anybody guess, what do you think the lowest anxiety state is in the United States? Hawaii, Hawaii that's what I would have thought. Or maybe Texas, chilling down there with their cows and their horses. But it's actually, believe it or not, Florida. Now, don't y'all move to Florida. I know, you're like, okay, I'm gonna move to Florida. No, um, <laughs> okay, so that's the lowest anxiety state. In, uh, but still, they have a, a rate of 16.03% of anxiety in Florida, 16%. The highest state, anybody wanna take a guess what that is? <laughs> California, I hear Oregon. Oregon wins. Uh, 22.666. <laughs> no, just, just, just kidding. Uh, yeah, but that's true, Oregon. Oregon is the most anxious, anxious of all states. Um, it's because we're stupid. Uh, we've messed up our state horribly, and there's no wonder we're full of anxiety. That's according to Mental Health America, their recent study. Um, Interesting, the majority of adults with anxiety have, um, who have a mild impairment uh, is 43%. Of all the anxiety people, 33.7% have a moderate impairment. But sadly, 228 have a serious impairment. 22.8% uh, of those that are anxious are like seriously impaired. Um, interesting, when you look at the statistics, it's skyrocketing compared to what it was 20 years ago. So whatever we're doing is not working. I think we can agree. But if I sometimes think the answer is not a new answer, it's an old answer. And the Bible, Paul gives us the answer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. Here's the answer right here. This is the tool you have to fight and battle anxiety. Everything, give everything to the Lord by prayer. And then there's kind of like our previous verse we were showing you from uh, 1 Timothy chapter two, same, he lists off kinds of prayer. Prayer, petition, thanksgiving, and it said, present your requests to God. And what will happen? And then it says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is one of those scriptures, by the way, you either believe it or you do not. It's up to you whether you're gonna believe God's word uh, well, I've tried praying. Uh, I, I go to dinner, God is good, God is great, thank you for the food, amen, and I eat, and, and I still don't have that, I still have anxiety. No, we're talking about the fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman who goes to their knees in fervent prayer and, and casts their cares and is thankful for good things and in everything, giving their, the Lord says, I'll give you an, a, a peace that passes understanding or anything you can know mathematically, I'll give you a peace that's immeasurable. That's what he's saying. That's a promise. Now, this NIV, if you keep reading, that was verse seven. If you go to verse eight, it goes like this. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, Paul says, or seen in me, put it into practice. That's, that's where we drop the ball. We read the Bible and check the box. Well, I know what the Bible says. It says, be anxious for nothing. Uh, think on these things, true, noble, lovely, admirable, praiseworthy, you know, think of these. We, but, but have we done it? Have we really put it to practice? So he says, the things you've learned to me or seen in me, put it in practice, and the God of peace will be with you. In, a, in the last days, things are gonna get more and more crazy, the Bible says, which would stand to reason that we would all get more anxious. And I see that. It's funny how I watch the church at large getting more and more anxious, but I'll tell you it's not who's not. It's the Bible prophecy study people. They're studying what's going on in the world, and so when stuff that's crazy is going on in the world, you go, oh, you know what? The book of Revelation talks about that. This is exactly what God, see, as Bible prophecy people, instead of saying um, the world is falling apart, we see the pieces coming together. Exactly what God said would happen. And it gives us a great peace when we realize, wow, the Lord's totally in control. And he knows the beginning from the end and he knows the future of what's gonna happen. And we can rest that, no, that God knows what he's doing. Um, I love that we can do that. But prayer is also that tool that he wants us to give. By the way, um, I love this because um, the reason I use the NIV is because I like these words, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. You need to think on these things, it says. Have you ever thought through those things? Here's an assignment for you. This week, I'd like you to sit and jot down things, uh, just a few things that are true. Write down a few things that you know are noble. Write down and think about what things are right, pure, lovely, admirable. Do this as a husband and a wife if you're married. Um, sit down and make each other uh, uh, come up with one for each of these. And I guarantee after that little exercise, you'll have a peace in your heart that passes understanding. It's what happens. Here's a tool. Paul says, use it. Um, put it into practice. And so when my little kids were growing up in the house, Debbie and I, we would always remind our kids if they were walking around anxious or sour or dour, we'd say, oh, you gotta teener plep those thoughts. Do what? Teener plep them. What are you talking about? Well, if you take these true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admiral, excellent praise where this spells out a nice teener plep. Now, you could say teen or plap, uh, leave the E out, because excellent or praiseworthy, you could choose one, and it spells teen or plap uh, without the excellent, but uh, whatever, teen or plap, teen or plap. But that's what I'm asking of you. In the days we're living, I think Christian, Christians need to do this, you know, teen or plap those thoughts. And right before it, it says, pray. Don't be anxious for anything, but pray. So Jesus is giving us tools. If your last days kind of people, one of the tools he gives you and me is to be people of prayer. What a tool we have. The second admonition Jesus gives us in light of living in the last days and the world kind of going crazy, uh, not only are we supposed to pray, number one, but number two, we're supposed to work. Oh, Brett, that's shocking. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. Didn't say anything different than that. Uh, here's the problem. Those of us that believe we're saved by grace through faith, which you should believe that because the Bible's really clear on that. Read Ephesians 2.8. Uh, and other scriptures, we're saved by God's grace, period. You can't add to that, you can't be better, and hopefully you're saved by your good works. I hope you understand that, that's given. But often those of us that believe that, we forget to talk about the works part, because 
When you're saved by grace, thank the Lord, there's still works that are asked of you. When, you, when you're saved by grace, there should be works that are produced from that salvation. That's why James says faith without works is dead. In other words, if you have a person who claims to be saved and there's no evidence of good of work that they're doing, then you might have to wonder, are they really even saved? Like it's a good question to ask. But what does Jesus say? Look at verse 34. He uses this little example. Uh, he says in verse 34, for the son of man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. You see, this, this son of man is Jesus and he left to a far distant country in sort of a way, if you picture, remember he died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave, and then he ascended into heaven. And Jesus, our master, has been gone, if you would, in that way uh, for all this time. But what did he do? He left his servants in charge to do the work. That's what it says here. He says, um, he says I, I gave authority to my servants and to every man his work. Uh, what are the works that Jesus left for us to do? Boy, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Can I go over three works that I think are important that you can maybe at least start with this when you're thinking about the work that God is calling to do? What, are, what is the work that's required of us? Well, they came and asked Jesus that. What is the work? What are the works we should do with an S? Works. What are the works? And Jesus said this. The first one I'm gonna put down here is to believe on Jesus. That's the first thing. John 6, 29, um, you know, Jesus uh, uh, you know, articulated, he said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he, the Father, has sent. Um, that's the first thing you gotta do. And, and that, before you uh, realize it, you actually, Jesus did all the work dying on the cross for our sins. But the only thing he asks of you is to simply believe, which is hardly work, but that's what's required of us, to believe on the one who the Father sent. That's the first work Jesus talked about. Then, <laughs> they asked Jesus about which of the laws, the works of the law is most important. And we learned about this last week, uh, Mark 12, 30 and 31, where they said, what are the, what's the most important law? And Jesus said, it's this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love, the greatest of the commandments. So Jesus, when he ascended, he said, I, I want you to do some works. First, believe on me, Jesus, Second, I want you to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If we're last days Christians, this is what we should be busy doing, doing that kind of work of loving. How are we doing as a church on that? Sometimes I think we're really good at you know, bashing or criticizing or talking about this or that or the other thing, but how are we doing on the loving part? That's what last days Christians should be doing. People believe they're living the last days. Thirdly, um, we have uh, you know, Jesus saying, here's what I want you to do. The Great Commission is what I'm gonna call it. And we see it in Mark 16. We also see it in Matthew, kind of put a different way. But in Mark 16, Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. That's one of the works we're called to do. Um, he entrusted you to do that work. No, Brett, that's your job. That's what we pay you to do. You're the pastor, preach, baptize, make disciples. Well, do you understand it's not just my job? I think we, we make that mistake. Um, do you guys understand there's people that would never set foot in a church like this, let alone listen to a windbag like me? 
There's people that never want anything to do with the church. There are people you work with, you go to school with, people that live next door to you, and they will never hear the good news of the gospel message unless you do the work that you're called to do, the Great Commission. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting how Jesus uh, uh, said in, you know, in Matthew's account, he said, go and make disciples and, and uh, baptize people. This, like, this is what we're supposed to be doing. So when it comes to Jesus here in Mark 13, he says, it's like the, when I took a far journey away and I gave my servants work to do, that's what he wants us to do. Now, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, his account of it, do you remember Jesus went off on a, a bit of a, a charge on the person, the wicked servant. You guys remember the wicked servant? And the wicked servant, ah, the Lord delays his coming. Uh, forget about Jesus and his return. And so he goes and parties down and punches his brother in the face. And Jesus said, his portion's gonna be with the people that have the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. But there was another servant who was found faithful doing the work that he was called to do. Remember this in Matthew 24? And, um, and Jesus said, that servant's gonna be blessed and I'll say, enter in thou good and faithful servant. All I know is I don't wanna be that first wicked servant who's saying, yeah, whatever, the Lord delays is coming and I'm just gonna party down and not do the work. Here, Jesus tells us in Mark's account, a very short version of that, but we should be busy about the work. When I was a little uh, young guy, I was, I was working with my dad in construction. Uh, like in my high school years, I started doing a little more serious work with that. But my dad was always the superintendent on a job and he was the big boss. And, and you know, he, he, he walked with some serious authority. And, um, but I remember when, when, how people worked, I remember observing when people worked around my dad, they worked very differently when he was not on the job site. I remember guys would be like, you know, my dad would be gone, they'd be kind of, you know, messing around. And I, I was faithfully working because I knew that my dad had like eyes in the back of his head, you know, and he just somehow knew. So I was so fearful. I was always worried. But, but, um, but these guys would mess around. And then as soon as my dad had this big Ford truck with a diesel motor and he'd come driving in and everybody's like, oh, oh, Todd's here. You know, getting hauling lumber, like busy, busy because the boss was in town. Um, another thing that was funny was my dad had these nail bags uh, he wore as a superintendent. You don't, you don't always see them wearing nail bags, but he carried his tools around. And, um, and he was just as quick to get into the work as anybody. But, um, but those nail bags had a particular timber to them. You could hear them coming. And when you'd hear the jingle of my dad's nail bags, the guys would, oh, Todd's coming. Ah, you know, get everything, get some lumber on your shoulders, like start hauling stuff, do something, look busy. Um, it's a funny thing. I wonder if that's what's gonna happen when Christ returns. Is there gonna be Christmas? <laughs> Just like the disciples when Jesus said, watch and pray, but they weren't, weren't able to because they were just sleeping. Here, Jesus uses the same imagery and, and, and in the days of the second coming of Christ and the end times, we're supposed to be busy about the work that Jesus called us to do. So the first thing he said is pray. Watch and pray. Second thing we should be doing is doing the work that he's called us to do. These are three big ones. The third and final portion of this, though, is where Jesus told us very clearly, oh, oh, by the way, let me, I forgot to mention this. Daniel, Daniel is a great example of this. Daniel was a guy who lived in apocalyptic times, wouldn't you agree? He wakes up one morning, his parents are slaughtered, his house is demolished, the temple in Jerusalem is leveled, the whole city is leveled, and they're being dragged off in chains to Babylon as, as prisoners. Well, Daniel finds favor there in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar raises Daniel and his boys, uh, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up to people of authority. 
But Daniel's constantly doing the work of God's plan and purpose. He's constantly, and, and the Lord would give him great revelation and that's why we have the book of Daniel with such powerful prophecies. But one of those prophecies Daniel received and I love what happened when Daniel receives this prophecy. It says, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. That's what happens when people listen to my teaching right there. <laughs> I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Daniel wrote stuff he didn't even understand what he was writing. By the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote stuff down and said, well, I, ho I hope this means something but I don't understand what it is. What did he do, sit around and pout? No, he got back up and did the king's business. Daniel was the kind of guy that just, even though he hadn't all, didn't have it all figured out, he was just busy about the work of the Lord. And because of that, Lord blessed Daniel profusely, profoundly. Uh, well, so uh, pray and work, but also lastly, watch, watch. And this is the obvious hit you in the face thing where Jesus says this over and over again. Did you notice he says, uh, verse 33, take heed, watch and pray. Uh, verse 34, and commanded the porter to watch. Uh, look at verse 37, I, um, uh, or verse 35. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes. Verse 37, what I say unto you, I say to all, watch. He wants us to be watching. Watching what? Well, as it turns out, the Bible tells us in other places what we're supposed to be watching. Jesus taught us this uh, in, here in Mark 13, but even more clearly in Matthew 24 and 25, watch the signs of the times. He said, know this, watch. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes in diverse places. There'll be those who will come and claim to be the Christ, but are not, but they're false. Um, there'll be nation rising against nation, ethnicity rising against ethnicity, disease, diverse kinds of pestilence. Like Jesus says, watch. And when this stuff all starts to happen, these are the beginning of, birth pains, he says, or sorrows like a woman in travail with childbirth. Um, this is the kind of language Jesus said. When these things start to happen, you should be watching. Watch therefore, he says. Paul the apostle would only uh, reinforce what Jesus said. First Thessalonians chapter five, uh, verses one through six, um, it says there, but the times and the seasons, brothers, he's talking to Christian, the church, you have no need that I write to you. For yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they, not us, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Brett, what's this whole travail with woman and child thing? If you've had a baby, you know what we're talking about here. Um, uh, you know, that's why, you know, uh, when us guys are trying to make ourselves useful uh, at that most dire moment, we get on our clock, our stopwatch, and we're, we're timing the contractions and how far between each contraction because the, the more intense the contraction and the more frequent they are, the, that means the, the baby's coming. And you can almost know when the baby's coming by the woman in travail with child. This is what the idea is when the Bible talks about the end times and the second coming of Christ. You'll know by the birth pains, their intensity and their frequency. And I believe that's what we're seeing today. <clears throat> we're seeing all kinds of contractions, wars and rumors of wars, disease, earthquakes in diverse places. Um, <clears throat> we're seeing all that stuff happen more frequently and with greater intensity, just like uh, Jesus said here. Now, here in 1 Thessalonians, he goes on in verse four and says, but you, brethren, 
are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. <clears throat> you are children of the light, children of the day, not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, don't let us sleep. Are you one who's sleeping, Christian? Don't let us sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Same thing Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse. Paul the Apostle says, you're children of the light. I love this. Why are we children of the light? How does that work out logistically? Well, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. That's obvious. But it's, it's also tied to his word because remember Jesus, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says there in Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You and I will not be taken as children of the darkness because we have the light, big flashlight, the Bible, the word of God that illuminates our path and we can see what's going on in the world. So when I see what's going on geopolitically and I go, and most people are like, oh, I can't believe they're doing that. You can say, believe it, because the Bible says it was gonna happen. Let me, let me talk about, um, you know, those that would say, oh, Brett, you guys have been talking about the rapture of the church and end times. I, since my grandma used to talk, she's in heaven now. She was wrong. She thought the rapture was coming in her time period. Um, and I think you're just wacko. And that's what a lot of churches today think of Bible prophecy. They're like, yeah, what a waste of time. And those Bible prophecy churches. By the way, if you've been around long enough, um, the church is a pendulum and it swings with all its fads and fancies. Do you remember, if you're old enough, do you remember in the 90s when Tim LaHaye's books became huge sellers, Left Behind series? And suddenly the whole church, all Christians were like, wow. It was just a novel series written about kind of the way, the, if you're coming from a pre-trib, pre-millennial sort of viewpoint, he wrote how the story could come out. And he wrote an interesting story. But I saw it suddenly became really popular to sort of um, believe in the rapture and it became a fad. Everybody's looking for the coming of the Lord. And I remember being excited about that. But at the same time, I was also like, Jesus said, it's at an hour when you think not, that's when I'm gonna come. And I remember thinking, wow, the church is very alert right now. But toward the end of the 90s, the early 2000s, churches, people, Christians, like, oh, Tim LaHaye and his rapture of the church. We've been talking about that for five years and look, nothing's happened. So they dismiss it. And, and now the church is in the swing the other way where pastors are, yeah, the rapture's not even in the Bible and blah, blah, blah. We don't, we're just gonna pan out and whatever's gonna happen. Like that's the attitude everybody has now. Uh, very hard to find a church today that's willing to talk about Bible prophecy. And that makes me excited. Why does it make you excited? Because the Bible says that's gonna be the last days at an hour when you all think not. In fact, in 2 Peter, if you recall, 2 Peter uh, chapter three, where Peter anticipates this. I'll just read it to you for speed. But um, it says, know this, that in the last days there shall come scoffers walking after their own lusts. That's the reason they're scoffing is because they've got sins they still wanna commit. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And it says, for this they're willingly ignorant of. They're purposefully saying, we don't wanna know about that. Because... They wanna keep do their own lustful things. See, that's the condition I'm concerned about. A church that's more into themselves, doing their own self thing and not worried about the second coming of Christ or the rapture of the church or what's going on in the world. Now, some of you say, okay, Brett, so you mean to tell me when you do like a prophecy update, you're, you're looking at all the geopolitics and trying to fit it into the Bible. Well, that's not exactly what we're doing. Some people will accuse us of that. 
But what we're doing is simply watching what's going on around us, what's the situation in the world, and how does it fit with Bible prophecy? That's kind of the way we're doing it. Can I show you an example of that? I'll just give you one example, and then we'll leave the rest of it for the prophecy update this Friday. Um, and then we'll wrap it up. <clears throat> but <clears throat> for example, if you know your Bible prophecy, and I'll give you like, here's some really no-brainer stuff that you're even the person that doesn't study Bible prophecy probably has heard about. There's coming a time, according to the book of Revelation, during the tribulation period, we'll be out of here. We'll be in heaven by that time. But when the tribulation comes, there's gonna be a world economic system, a one world economic system the Bible talks about. And it's really unique. It's gonna be by one world leader who's gonna enforce everybody to use his currency system. And it's gonna be different. It's not gonna be like dollars. It's gonna be cashless. And it's gonna be a thing where if you're gonna buy or sell, you have to have a mark in your right hand or in, not on, in your forehead. That's what it says. And it's, so unless you take that mark, which is also undying allegiance to the world leader who's coming, uh, when you get that mark, you're saying, I'm on board. Um, by the way, what's the number one resistance to a global uh, currency, one world government, one world religion, the, you know, you might say the church, uh, first, second Thessalonians talks about that, but really it's the United States of America that is largely the, the one group that we still care about our freedoms, at least we did until last week, um, uh, care about personal liberty, religious freedom. We're like one of the few countries that aren't just checking and saying, no, lead us, tell us what to do. Um, and that's where a problem. So as America declines, it is starting to set up for this thing the book of Revelation talks about. A one world government, one world religion, one world economic system, and a chip or some kind of mark in your hand that will identify you as a follower of this world leader. Oh, but that's crazy. It's crazy, but when you, have you ever watched the Davos, Davos conference in Switzerland, World Economic Forum? It's the richest elites that show up, Bill Gates and all these people with all the billions of money, dollars, powerful people in the world. They all gather together at Davos in Switzerland once a year, and they talk about how they can be more global. It's globalism at its finest. Um, and the leader of this, Klaus Schwab, um, did you see this article a couple days ago? This, this is a good example of things to kind of watch. Um, Charles, Schwab, <laughs> Charles Schwab, Klaus Schwab said, uh, from the world, this article says he's being nailed for importing China's cultural revolution into the West. Klaus Schwab and his World Economic Forum are trying to replicate in the West uh, a CCP, communist, you know, China, um, style of high-tech totalitarian system, which a small group of elites will bark orders and ordinary citizens will have to dutifully obey. Western and American conservatives are sounding alarm about potential CCP-style social credit system, uh, possibly enforced through the nation's digitized currency or central bank digital currency, CBDC. Central, that's something to watch. They're trying to come up with something that will replace the dollar, uh, that's the monetary system that's used around the world. They want a central bank digital currency. And it's so that they can uh, restrict how you use your own money. Um, Cato, the libertarian group, Cato, writes in addition to potentially spelling doom for what little financial privacy protections remain for citizens, the CBDC would provide countless opportunities for the government to control citizens and their financial opportunities. Uh, World Economic Forum has, has had discussions about, you know, they'll limit what you can do with your money. If, like, like, for example, if you drive an electric vehicle, you can go and see concerts 
and have dinner at uh, El Gaucho's. Uh, I call that El Gaucho's, but it's really good steak. Um, but, um, but, you know, you can do the fancy stuff. But if you drive an F-150, well, you're destroying the earth. So your social credit goes, scores down and you still have to eat at McDonald's only. Uh, and you don't get to go see the concert. Um, like, that's the stuff they're talking about. Limiting people who are having low social credits, where they can go and what they can do, um, and what have you. Uh, so the World Economic Forum talks about stuff like this. By the way, um, where do you think I found this statement? Um, this statement, famines, floods, pestilence, drought, plague, war, rumors of wars. These are the key issues facing the world today. Can you imagine who said that? Was it Paul the Apostle? Was it Jesus in his Olivet Discord? Because that kind of sounds like Jesus' Olivet Discourse. But it wasn't. This was actually Klaus Schwab himself who said these words. Um, and this was the title of the article, Eve of Destruction, Klaus Schwab Pledges the World Can Find Salvation at Davos 2022. This was a, uh, a year ago when he did this. Uh, what do you find at Davos? Uh, salvation from what? Wars and rumors of wars. Uh, I'm telling you, this guy hasn't been listening to Jesus. Um, um, you know, it's interesting because this article uh, says famine, floods, pestilence, drought, war, rumors of war. These are the key issues facing the world today. To the invitation-only World Economic Forum next week in Davos, uh, Switzerland, it's just the place to find the answers provided by the select global elites founder Klaus Schwab declared Wednesday. The return of war, epidemics, and climate crisis, all those disruptive forces have derailed the global recovery, Schwab's forum executive chairman told the journalists, in almost a biblical prognostication ahead of the convention's start on Sunday. Um, if you don't believe that they're talking about this, uh, listen to what he said. I think this was this year, 2023, in a small conference room. Uh, listen to what Schwab, Schwab said here. This almost seems like a cartoon to me, but it's actually real. Can you imagine that in 10 years when we are sitting here, we have an implant in our uh, brains and um, I can immediately feel, because you all will have implants, I can, and we measure your, your brain waves, and I can immediately tell you how the people react, or I can feel uh, how the people react um, to your answers. Uh, how many of you guys would like to have Klaus Schwab in your brain, brains? <laughs> That's what he's suggesting, that he has that. <laughs> oh. Sorry, I don't know how that, how did that picture get in there? Sorry. Uh, uh, back to Mark chapter 13. <laughs> so, uh, so you say, Brett, what is that? What, what, what as Bible prophecy people, what we like to do is say, wow, what's going on in the world that matches with what the Bible says the last days? And guess what? The rapture of the church is gonna happen before all that actually gets kicked into gear. In other words, that's gonna happen during the tribulation, a world leader, global currency. Uh, you won't be able to buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast. Like the Bible, isn't it amazing? 2,000 years ago it was predicted and yet it's so perfectly, and I, man, there's just hundreds and hundreds of things. We could talk about Israel trying to divide Jerusalem in half. The Bible says in Zechariah 14, Zechariah 12, that they're gonna divide Jerusalem in half in the last days. It's exactly what they're doing. When you hear this talk about, we need to go back to the 67 borders in Jerusalem, that's chopping Jerusalem in half. Um, and the Bible says that's the day when they try to handle the cup of trembling in Jerusalem. Um, we could talk about the judicial overhaul in Israel. We might talk about that on Friday. Unrest, thousands of Mossad military personnel suspending their service in Israel. There's a, there's a civil war threat in Israel, which puts Israel in a very vulnerable, weakened place. And uh, we'll talk more about that. But the reason we talk about these things is not just 
um, say, wow, the world's falling apart. No, we're saying, look at how things are coming together, exactly like the Bible says. And the reason we know that is because we're watching, like Jesus told us to watch. And then we're also hopefully praying, and we're also hopefully working. Watch, work, pray. That's what we should be as end time believers. May the Lord give us ears to hear what he says to his church on these last days we're living. In Jesus' name, let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you'd find a church here at Athey Creek, a bunch of people who um, are doing what you told us to do. We see how people are so dismissive of such clarity that Jesus gave us in the Olivet Discourse and what we, what, what's expected of us as believers. But I pray that you'd show each one of us how to better watch, work, and pray, serving you, uh, casting our cares on you. Instead of being anxious about what's going on in the world, Lord, I pray that we'd be um, uh, really excited about what's coming, that you're gonna come and make all the wrongs right. Um, you're gonna set the captives free and open wide prison doors and uh, heal and the kingdom coming, Lord, that's something that we really pray for. But at the same time, we know how many people are lost, souls that still need to hear the good news. So may we be busy about the work of the kingdom, <clears throat> preaching the gospel, sharing wherever we can, um, speaking truth and love. Lord, give us wisdom how to apply ourselves that way. For the person who yet does not know you or repented of their sins and confessed their belief, Lord, I pray that they'd soften their hearts and, and come to know you. Even those that might be here or watching online this hour, I pray that you just cause them to know their need for salvation, that they'd accept and believe. This we pray, Lord, knowing you've heard our prayer, and now we offer it in Jesus' name, amen.